The following is a lecture by Dwight A. Pryor of the Center for Judaic Christian Studies, a ministry renewing the Christian mind by restoring to the church its lost Hebraic heritage. This material is copyrighted with all rights reserved. For more information about Dr. Pryor's ministry, please visit our website, jcstudies.com, or call us at 937-434-4550. Thank you, and Shalom. As we continue, I'd like to conclude with uh, Chapter 2 and then open the floor for discussion. So let's resume where we left off at the last session, and that is at uh, chapter 2, and picking it up at verse 17. In chapter 1, Paul is indicting the pagan society, indicating that it's under God's judgment against wrath, and God is handing pagans over to the very lust of their flesh, and the language that's used, handing over, is the language of deliberate judicial action. It's as if the judgment is, this is what you want, this is what you'll have. It's that kind of terrible logic that C.S. Lewis alludes to when he says, when you come before Jesus, the judge, and you haven't sought and done his will, then he will have to say to you, as you choose, not my will, but your will be done. But now in chapter 2, Paul is, on the other hand, turning his critique against some of his fellow Jewish believers, the church in Rome. Remember, this is a critique from within Judaism, not as someone standing outside criticizing but someone from within. And in effect, in some ways, it's almost as if he's speaking to himself in his former state of zeal. The point is, he's not indicting any particular Jew, nor Jews as a whole. He's talking here, of course, in the same way when he talks about Gentiles, not about any particular Gentile, but he's talking about the condition that we're all prone to. And in this particular instance, he's talking about those who have an attitude of boasting, an attitude of some kind of special spiritual status because they are of the circumcision. These works of the law, the ergonamu, the ma'aseha Torah, this defines them in some way as the privileged people. And Paul is arguing here to show that all are in need of the righteousness of God revealed in Messiah Jesus. For all of like are under the dominion of Adam, whether outside the Torah or under the Torah. Sin is sin, and you will be judged. What the Torah could not do, Paul's going to argue, namely deal with this issue of Adam, of the sinful nature, the power of sin in the world of evil, 
is dealt with decisively in the Torah incarnate Yeshua, Israel's representative and mankind's representative. So all are under the judgment of sin. And Paul here is being very critical against some of his fellow Jewish believers who have taken a position of boasting, as it were, of spiritual pride in their ethnic identity and their religious practice. Paul points out that the very Torah that you're so boastful about with respect to the Gentiles is in fact the very Torah that will judge you as a sinner. On the other hand, if a Gentile, and I am suggesting again here that at this point Paul's talking about Gentile believers who are doing the deeds of Torah, walking in the revelation of Torah, if they do so, that will be indicative of their justification. The bottom line for Paul is this, that it is sin, it's the power of sin, the flesh is his technical term for this, sarx in Greek, sarx, S-A-R-X. It's not the physical per se. Paul doesn't hold to a dualism of the physical being the material is evil and the spiritual being the immaterial is the good. That's a, a platonic, a Greek dualism that Paul doesn't hold to. The conflict for Paul is not between the spiritual and the material. The material, your body, is actually a temple of the spirit. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the physical. What is wrong is with the flesh. And that's why the NIV more accurately renders sarks as the sinful nature. It's not just the physical. It's the inclination in you to sin, to rebel, to go your own way, to go astray. And for Paul, this is not just a matter of falling short of the ideal. For Paul, in some respects, sin is a power at work in the world and has been since the time of Adam and is a power that the Torah has not defeated. In fact, it's a power at work within those under the Torah and because of their flesh, their sinful inclinations, rather than the Torah bearing the life that it points to, it actually is going to become the instrument of their judgment. So the, the flesh has weakened the Torah. And consequently, Israel and the Torah of Israel have not accomplished the purpose that God intended in their covenantal election, namely to bring shalom and blessing to the nations. It's also why for Paul, the apostle, it won't do just to make all the Gentiles converts to Judaism. It just won't do. It hasn't solved the problem for Israel. Israel came out of Egypt, but Adam hasn't yet come out of Israel. And so just converting everybody, making everyone proselytes, there certainly are advantages to that. Paul talks, is going to talk about what advantage has the Jew much in every way. There are many advantages. But at the end of the day, sin is still at work in those in Israel. 
And that sin has not been successfully or finally dealt with or defeated by the Torah. And so Israel has not yet finally accomplished the purpose for which it was elected to be the instrument of God's salvation in the earth and to be the source of blessings to other nations. So it's not sufficient just to make everyone Jews and Torah observant. Something more decisive, apocalyptic, has to happen. The righteousness of God has to come in and decisively defeat evil, deal with sin, conquer death, hell, and the grave, in order that then by the outpouring of the Spirit, we can walk in the revelation that the Torah has always pointed to. The problem is not the Torah. The problem is sin. It's the problem for Israel. It's the problem for the Gentiles. Ideally, Israel would have been the world's answer. But Paul is pointing out that, in fact, Israel again and again has been judged. You've had the Assyrian conquest and dispersion of the ten tribes. You've had the Babylonian exile. Those very inheritors of the Torah again and again have brought upon themselves the curses that the covenant enjoins upon covenant breakers. And even in the second temple period, even though Israel was a nation, a remnant had returned, the temple had been restored, it was the view of the sages that in some respect Israel was still in exile. And exile is indicative of God's judgment, of God's curse. How are they in exile? They're in the land, but their overlords are pagans. <coughs> Rome. There's not shalom. There's divisiveness, conflict. Indeed, according to the sages themselves, it was hatred, internecine strife and hatred, a Jew against Jew, that led to the destruction of the second temple. That's the rabbinic explanation of why God destroyed the temple. It was Jewish hatred against fellow Jews. And even as Jerusalem lay in siege and despair, groups within the besieged city were attacking one another and killing one another. This is the power of sin in the work, even in those who've received the gift of God's Torah. Paul is simply documenting this. And so instead of being the source of the world's salvation and blessing, Israel has proved to be composed of sinners, just like the rest of us, and has not brought about the honor of God's name in the world. And so Paul cites Isaiah 52.5 here in verse 24. The name of God is blaspheme among the nations, the Gentiles, because of you. It's a reference to Isaiah 52, verse 5. Let's turn there. Remember, Isaiah 40 through 55, an absolute treasure chest of insights into the thinking of Paul. Verse 4. <coughs> Israel here is being exhorted. Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth for me, the Torah will go forth for me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. Now notice verse 5. 
My righteousness is near. My righteousness is near. Do you see that? 52.5. Well, then how am I seeing it? It's because I, I have eyes to see that you have not. I think the problem is my eyes. I can't see. That's right. Thank you. 52. Oh, it was a test. That's right. You did very well. We'll get back to 51.5. It's in my notes to come to. Okay, so 52.5 is where I'm wanting to go. This is the text Paul is actually quoting. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares Adonai, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Adonai, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. In that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. And then it goes into this promise. How lovely on the mountains are those who bring the gospel. So Paul here is citing 52.5 also with a reference to Ezekiel 36, verses 20 through 23. And the point here in this greater passage is that Isaiah is documenting the fact that Israel is in exile. They're under judgment. A restoration is promised. A gospel is going to come forth. And with that gospel, the righteousness of God will be revealed. But at present, Israel is in exile. And therefore, Paul is arguing, my fellow Jewish believers, you have no basis for arrogance or boast with respect to the Gentiles. For you, like them, stand in need of a deliverer. You stand in need of God's righteousness. Now, in verses 25 through 29, Paul goes into a discussion about circumcision. Please remember, when the, when the New Testament talks about circumcision, it's not, as you've always been taught, talking about a ritual that somehow is related to good works that earns God's favor. This is not legalism. We all have that. Yes, we all are opposed to legalism, including the rabbis. Everybody knows that you cannot, by some pious deeds, win the favor or the grace of God. Paul's going to argue here, if you earned it, it's not grace. It's a reward. And grace is not the same as reward. So when, it talks, when Paul's talking about circumcision in this context, he's not talking about some works righteousness, quote-unquote, some legalistic approach keeping ritual and doing all the commandments so that you get saved based on your good deeds. No, circumcision here is one of these badges of identity, the works of the law. Let's get this terminology down so you'll have it. Works of the law, always in quotes in your thinking. This is not works righteousness. In the Greek, ergonomu. 
In the Hebrew, ma'aseh Torah, osei, to do, the doings, the deeds of the Torah. What Paul is talking about here is that sense of circumcision being a sign, a badge of your covenantal standing. That you are a member of God's covenant. And Paul is arguing that if you are not walking in obedience to what the covenant stipulates, just having the badge of covenantal status does you no good. In fact, it can even contribute to your spiritual religious pride. Having the badge proving that you are a card-carrying member of the covenant people has no weight with God, argues Paul, unless, in fact, you're conducting yourself in a manner consistent with being the covenantal people. And so, Israel has not walked circumspectly, and they are under exile. They're not dispersed at this moment, but they're under the reign of Caesar. They need deliverance. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7 is a key text to understand where Paul's coming from in his mentality. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19 Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now we'll set aside for a moment what the commandments he's talking about that are applicable to the Gentiles. That'll be a discussion we'll take up later. But notice this, that circumcision with respect to Messiah, circumcision doesn't count, uncircumcision doesn't count. Neither has a basis for boasting. The uncircumcised should not be boasting in the fact we're free from the law and God has displaced Israel and now we're the covenant people, etc., etc. On the other hand, boasting in the Torah and in the works of the Torah is not permitted either. There's no basis for spiritual superiority here, for ethnic pride, or thinking that having the badges of covenantal status, in this case circumcision, as a sign of the covenant given to Abraham, is in fact proof that you are justified before God. You may have the badge, but when the great day of the Lord appears, and you come before him, he'll have to say, excuse me, can I have your badge? <laughs> Turn your badge in at the door, and the guard will escort you. So the badge doesn't count. What counts is being in Messiah. And the badge of that is not circumcision, not the Sabbath, not kashrut, even though those are all good things decreed by God as signs of the Mosaic Covenant, but the badge of being in Messiah is faith. Faith in him, faithfulness to him. And that goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But in that faith, there has to be faithfulness. There has to be the keeping of the commandments. And this is the justification through or in relationship, justification in relationship to works that Paul is talking about in Romans 2. That faith, as James puts it, apart 
from these deeds is empty. It's like a, a body without breath. Now, verses 26 and 27, again, are talking about this issue from the point of view of the new covenant. And Paul applies this to the Gentile believers, namely that even someone who physically is uncircumcised, if he walks in a manner consistent with God's revelation, God's instruction for holy living, then he will not come under the judgment of God. But if you, though having the letter of the Torah, in other words, you're the possessors of the Torah, and are circumcised, if you're transgressing the Torah, it's in effect as if you were uncircumcised, and if the former, the Gentile, were circumcised. So Paul, in effect, is redefining what it means to be an authentic Jew like Abraham. Now, we have to emphasize, though, quickly that when Paul does this, he's not doing something that's unknown to the sages. It's not unknown to the prophets. When Paul says, not all who are of Israel are Israel, this is a statement the prophets could make and that the sages could make. Just because you're a physical, lineal descendant of David, just because you've been circumcised, doesn't mean, in fact, you truly are a son of Abraham. On the other hand, if you show authentic repentance and faith in Messiah, you can be the godfather of Jericho. You can be a disgusting tax collector, a chief tax collector named Zachai. And Yeshua will declare with God's authority, this man is a son of Abraham. He doesn't say that because Zachai was circumcised. He was circumcised long before Yeshua showed up. But in response to what Zachai did, repaid everyone he had cheated four times, according to the Torah's guidelines, gave half of his possessions to the poor, Consistent with Deuteronomy, be open-handed towards the poor. Don't be tight-fisted. Be generous. Have a generous eye. A, bount a man with a bountiful eye shares his, his bread, his means with the poor. He's blessed, says Proverbs. Because of what Zachai did, showing that he had come to authentic repentance and faith in Yeshua, then Yeshua declares this godfather, this crook, this guy who's worse than the pagans because he consorts with the pagans and oppresses his own people and rips them off. Now, in view of his repentance, I'm telling you, he is a son of Abraham. Because to be a son of Abraham means more than to be circumcised in the flesh. It means, as Moses himself says in Deuteronomy, to have your heart circumcised which is an idiom for repentance. So he, verse 28, he is not a Jew on the basis of outward signs. He is a Jew on the basis of the condition of the heart. In other words, his circumcision is a work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
And therefore, his praise, notice that at the end of verse 29, his praise is not from men, but from God. This is speaking, first of all, of that tendency for arrogance and pride. You remember on, the, uh, on an occasion, Yeshua was confronted by some of the super pious folks, and they say to him, who do you think you are? forgiving sins like this. Make yourself out to be God. And Yeshua speaks of his intimacy with the Father, and he critiques them and their hypocrisy, their spiritual attitude, their spiritual arrogance. And they say to him, well, Abraham is our father. That's the attitude that Paul is, a, is critiquing here. That attitude of spiritual arrogance and pride that has identified itself and symbolized itself in the very works of the Torah that God gave as signs of covenantal faithfulness have now become indicators of spiritual arrogance and pride. But there's, a, I think, a very subtle hint here, this curious circumcision which is of the heart by the Spirit not just by the letter, by covenantal status. And his praise is not from men, but from God. What is the word for Judah, from which we get the term Jew? What is the root of that word, and what does it mean? Yada, to praise. Yehuda, Judah. Yehudim, the people that praise. Paul here is talking about what does it mean to be an authentic Jew, a true son of Abraham, and he says, these are the ones, the ones who are circumcised, whose hearts are circumcised by the Spirit. These are the ones who are truly the Yehudim, and they receive praise from God. Please remember here, this is not an antithesis between the Spirit on the one hand and the Torah on the other hand, okay? The Torah itself <coughs> was written by the finger of God, the Spirit of God. This is a critique of religious exclusivity, of spiritual arrogance. The whole point, the whole reason, the first message that the King Yeshua proclaims upon his arrival is repent, because all of Israel, like all of humanity, is in need of repentance. Repentance is an act of humility. And you enter into the kingdom by way of repentance, not by way of spiritual pride. Now, this principle obviously applies to us too. I'm not going to mention any particular religious affiliations, but the fact is we all know that spiritual arrogance. By God, I'm fourth generation. <laughs> in which we, we assume because we have taken on the badges or the signs of covenantal status, which for Christianity, what is the corresponding parallel to circumcision in the Torah? Baptism. Baptism, exactly. And so just because we've been baptized into the proper church with all of its hallowed, ancient, venerable tradition doesn't mean, from Paul's point of view, that you, in fact, are in good covenantal standing. The same 
tendency because of the flesh to boast in religious status is universal. It's not a problem of the Jew, the religious man, as he's been caricatured, as opposed to the spiritual man. It's a problem widespread in Christendom. We have excelled in arrogance. <laughs> we have triumphed in triumphalism. We of all people are most proud and we're humble about it. <laughs> so the parallel here would be that just because one has the sign of covenantal status in the Christian tradition being baptism, does it mean that in fact one has a circumcised heart or that one truly has good covenantal standing with God? The true authentic Jew, Paul says to his fellow Jewish believers, the true son of Abraham is one even that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy, one whose heart has been circumcised. That's language that comes right from the Torah. So the Torah here is not in opposition to the spirit, the spirit is in opposition to the flesh. Whether it's Jewish flesh or Gentile flesh, it's all the flesh of Adam. And that's what the Torah, that's what the spirit is in opposition to the flesh. Paul's going to go on to say that in fact, in some ways, for you who are in the flesh, the Torah actually has intensified your sinful nature blatantly identified it as sin so that the judgment will be all the more severe. You have no excuse. We have to beware here of linear either-or Greek thinking. So Paul here is defining the status of the true covenantal people of God with respect to his Jewish believers. Yeshua and Paul here are fulfilling, are speaking of fulfilling or walking in obedience to the Torah, independent or apart from the signs of covenantal status. You can have the signs and not the reality. You can have the reality and not the signs. At least not the traditional signs. And that's what Paul is speaking of. There are Gentile believers in this community who don't have the standard signs of Israel covenant status, but in fact, they are covenantal people and are fulfilling the Torah by the way they walk. And these are the people that are praised by God. So let's just close this out with a summit, summation and then take your questions. This critique of Paul of appearance versus the inward reality applies equally to all people, to the Jews and to the church. It's just that to his Jewish believing friends in Rome, he's saying you are the ones that have been elected by God through Abraham precisely to honor God's name, Adonai's name, among the nations. This was not the obligation of the Gentiles. It's your obligation. Your election has called you to greater levels of service. The Lord says through Isaiah, Atem Edai, you are my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses that I am the Lord and I alone am God. And Paul is saying to his fellow Jewish brethren, 
this is your responsibility. But instead of doing that, you've actually brought shame upon the name of God and condemnation upon yourselves. So don't boast in your Torah and in your works of the Torah. Now he's already critiqued and it's going to critique even more severely the Gentiles for their boast and their arrogance. And he's going to say later, there's no basis for boast except what? Exactly, boast in Messiah. This kind of critique that Paul does from within Judaism has proven very problematic in the history of the church because of Christian arrogance and triumphalism, these very statements of Paul have been taken out of context and have, have been used as whips to beat the Jewish people about. It's been extraordinarily tragic. Anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism was already a long-standing phenomenon in the Roman Empire. The Jews were looked upon with a considerable equivocation by Rome. They were a weird sect. They weren't like the others. Caesar had given them exemption from worshiping him, although they agreed in turn to pray for him. Not to worship him, but to pray for him. But this attitude of Gentile arrogance towards Jews is rife in the Roman church. And it's this that Paul's going to address in the most vigorous terms. But as part of his ongoing spiraling argument, he's trying to show that we all stand in need of the righteousness of God. We all need that decisive deliverance that not the Torah, but the Torah incarnate Yeshua, Messiah, brings. And lest any of you Jews think that you're in good standing after I've just gone through a whole litany of the pagan problems, recognize that you too need to humble yourselves and in repentance have faith in Messiah and walk in obedience to it. But the bigger problem, quite honestly, has been on the other side, Gentile arrogance, replacement theology, Christian triumphalism. But where Paul is coming from, remember I said to you earlier today, I think the best uh, category for explaining Paul with respect to his discussion with fellow Jews is to think of him in the mode of a prophet. You would never think of calling Jeremiah or Isaiah anti-Semitic, anti-Torah. But Paul is called that constantly in the history of the church and even by Jewish people is believed to be that. He's speaking as a prophet with prophetic critique. When the prophet speaks, it's with bold strokes. It's not subtle, but it's a calling to repentance. Remember I said to you, Paul's thinking must never be separated from Paul's Jewishness, but also his thinking is always multidimensional. So, in fact, one of the messages of all of this to us is the importance of the church humbling itself and reconnecting with its Jewish roots. And in one accord, Jew and Greek worship the one true God of Israel.
He's going to turn around now, and lest you start taking the critique of Jews and the Torah too far, he'll bring it back to a balance. But he's going, he begins this whole discussion by critiquing both communities, all from the context of God's covenantal purposes. The overriding question Paul's going to be addressing is, has God been faithful to Israel, or has he forsaken her? And if he has been faithful, then how do you explain the current state of affairs in which the promised Messiah of Israel has come on the scene and rather than joyfully being received by Israel, in effect nationally, as led by her corrupt leaders, have the nation has rejected this Messiah and handed him over to the Romans who executed him. How can we reconcile this? This is the issue Paul is going to be dealing with, and specifically placing the Gentiles in the big picture of God's salvation history in the earth. And that means finding their place on the map of Israel, so to speak. And Paul will argue quite vigorously that his teaching of faith in no wise contradicts God's covenant with Abraham, it fulfills it. His teaching on faith in no wise contradicts or abolishes God's Torah to Israel. It brings it to its fullness and vindicates it. So he comes to the conclusion later, as we will see, God, and only as he can only do in his inscrutable sovereignty, has in effect imprisoned all in sin, that he may liberate all from prison. The good news is, liberation is at hand. Exile is at an end in the King Messiah. To him be praise forever. Amen.